Welcome to today's Bible study. Today, Bo Landers, our discipleship and teaching pastor, joins us to continue our series titled, Mad Men of the Old Testament. Today, Bo is going to unpack the story of Judah. Now, let's listen to Bo. Good morning, guys. Uh, just a side note, on the November 5th thing, um, the guest speaker that morning is Gene Getz. So if you know Gene Getz, uh, he's going to be here with us. And so it's going to be a really special time of worship. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of Genesis. We're going to begin here in a moment in Genesis chapter 37. And so as we uh, dive in this, I know I know most of you, in case you don't, so I'm one of the teaching pastors up here, and I love getting to open God's Word. And as we continue our series uh, this, uh, on, uh, you know, this morning and, and looking at the mad men of the Old Testament, I know we've been able to cover different Old Testament characters. And this morning what I want to do is begin to unpack the story of Judah. And so this may be, uh, typically when we come to the back end of the book of Genesis, we usually look at the life of Joseph, right? Because Joseph is a, a model in so many ways. Uh, what I find interesting is that all woven throughout the story of Joseph, and we're going to go to a number of three main kind of sections of, of Scripture in the back end of Genesis uh, to look at, at Judah's life. Uh, I find it interesting that Judah is almost set up against Joseph in many ways. But at the same time, and where we'll kind of land this plane uh, as, we, uh, as we work through this, is that God still uses Judah. And so uh, that's what we really want to begin to focus in on. And so we want to begin in, in, in Genesis 37. We're going to read a lot of scripture, go through uh, kind of that's the nature of reading the story and the narrative of scripture, that we would kind of read it and I'll make some commentary along the way. Then at the very end, we'll drive to three kind of significant things that we can take away from the life of Judah. But as you know this, okay, so as we open up the book of Genesis, here's kind of where we are in the story. God has clearly promised that he is going to be with his people all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham. And so God promises three things. He says, I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you seed, and I'm going to give you blessings. Seed being descendants. And, and what, what we clearly see over the course of the book of Genesis is God is blessing his people over and over again. And then furthermore, he is, they are growing in number. And so after Abraham, uh, then comes Isaac. And you remember the whole story of Isaac. Then after Isaac comes the stories of <clears throat> Jacob. Now Jacob, uh, more than anything, his life is marked by deception. He would be his own character study in and of itself. Uh, that's actually a really good one. We could uh, remind John Mark in case he's got nothing else to say. Uh, Jacob would be a good one. But uh, as you think through uh, deception and just sort of the, the mark of, of Jacob's life, eventually at the end, he gets sort of renamed. And, and he gets renamed into Israel, right? Because he's the one who struggles with God. And, and truly, Jacob's life, more than Abraham, more than anybody else, it's Jacob's life that is, that is the most depictive of what Israel is going to look like for the rest of the Old Testament. And so after Jacob, then Jacob has these 12 sons. And so if you back up to uh, chapter 35, here are the 12 sons that we see uh, beginning in, in verse 23. It says this, the sons of Leah, or Leah, um, however you want to say it. If you want to go Princess Leah, that's also an option. Reuben, uh, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. And then you have the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali, and then the sons of Zilpah, uh, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. And so what you begin to see is you start to see these are the 12 sons that come from Jacob. And so that's where we are in the story. And that builds us all the way to chapter 37. 
Now with chapter 37, again, we know it from the angle of this is Joseph's dream interpretation time, right? He, he gets this dream that all of a sudden his brothers are going to be bowing down to him as one of the youngest brothers, yet all of his brothers will be bowing down to him. He interprets the dream. He's also his father's favorite, right? He's got the coat of many colors. This is not a good deal. And so then when we pick up <clears throat> in chapter 37, all of a sudden you see that in the midst of this story, what are the brothers' responses? And so we're going to kind of read maybe a familiar story, but read it through the lens of Judah. So in chapter 37, beginning in verse uh, 18, we can pick up there. His brothers are mad at, uh, uh, Joseph's brothers are mad at him. This is what we see in verse 18. So they saw him from afar, and before he came near to, uh, near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. So again, Genesis 37, now verse 19. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come, now let us kill him and throw him into the one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has, devo has devoured him, and we will uh, see that we will, be, uh, <laughs> and we will see what will become of his dreams. But verse 21 is interesting, right? Because Reuben sort of steps up and he, he says this. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of the hand, out of their hands, saying, "Let us not take his life." And Reuben said to him, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So they resolved basically not to kill him. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and they threw him into a pit. Now the pit was empty, there was no water. And what do they do? All right, so this is kind of the rest of the story, right? Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead when, uh, with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Now, this is where we see Judah first enter into the story. Verse 26. Then Judah, okay, he's, he becomes the spokesperson. Because we see how the firstborn Reuben has responded. Let's not kill him. Let's throw him into this pit, right? There's even some restoration piece there. But then Judah says to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Instead, sort of being an opportunist, right, what does he do? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let it not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. So he kind of devises this scheme it, through deception. And, and so this really becomes sort of the first thing that we see Judah doing. He's the one that kind of comes up with the idea, hey, let's sell this guy. Right, let's not kill him, but let, let's sell this guy instead. Then verse 28, so then the Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. I don't know how much you guys are worth, but hopefully it's a little bit more than that, right? Uh, they, uh, they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. I want to pause right there. So you can think of Judah's life sort of in three big scenes. This is sort of scene number one. We know who Judah is because he was born, but this is the first time we're seeing him. It, just thumbs up, thumbs down. Is it to, this is a good scene or a bad scene for Judah? Clearly, right? This is painting Judah as someone who's an opportunist. He's, he's going he's to be opportunistic in his ways. He's going to profit off of his own brother. This is really, really not a good situation. Okay, and again, I know that these are probably stories that we're at least familiar with, but this is beginning to paint for us sort of the character that is Judah. All right, but then we, we keep reading. Okay, so this whole thing happens, and normally at this point, we would skip to chapter 39, and we'd start seeing what happens to Joseph once he's in Egypt. But there is a key chapter 
in chapter 38 that's right in the middle of what happens to Joseph. And from a narratival perspective, from a story perspective, it's always important to kind of take a step back and go, why is this passage here in this section? Why is it located right here? It almost seems like a break from the story. Like you want to naturally go, okay, so what happens to Joseph? However, before we can even answer that question, we see this character Judah kind of come alive, even more so. We saw him introduced, and here's the second scene in chapter 38. So we get to this this, uh, second scene, and so this is what we read in verse 1 of chapter 38. So it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hirah. Now, when you think of this, so basically, there a lot of people, different commentators have said different things on this verse right here. But here's what we know. Judah leaves his brothers. Whether that's out of guilt, whether that's out of shame, whether that's just because that's the nature of life, the text really doesn't say. But here's what we do know. Somehow, the last time we saw Judah, he was the, the conspirer, right? He was, that was who he was. The next time we see Judah, he has now separated himself from all the rest of his family. And that'll, that, that's important as this scene begins to play out. Verse 2. So there, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. All right, good name for your daughter in the future, in case you haven't had that. He took her and went into her. All right, you know what that means, yes? <laughs> good, some of you laughed. Some of you are not awake yet. And she conceived and bore a son. And he called his name Ur. All right, again, there are some great names all throughout this. All right, uh, and you got to think, it's probably like, he's like, that wasn't supposed to happen. All right, <laughs> that's not biblical. Okay, so she, uh, thank you. All right, verse four, all right. So she conceived again, and they, uh, she called his name Onan, a little bit better, stronger name. And then verse five, yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. Now, here's what we know. Judah has three sons, okay? There's Ur, Onan, and Shua. Or, I'm not Shua, uh, uh, Shelah. Uh, Shua's the wife. And so that's what we have right there. We have three sons coming from Judah. Now, what happens to these sons? So Judah took a wife uh, uh, for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. And so now, again, this is a pause almost in the Joseph storyline. And you've got to begin asking the question, why? Like, why include all of this? So Tamar comes in, and Tamar is married to Ur. But Ur, verse 7, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight. And the Lord put him to death. So Ur is married to Tamar. What happens? Ur can't. Uh, Ur clearly does evil in the sight of the Lord. A phrase that is repeated through the book of Judges, for instance, that's repeated, I, I think, some 60 times in First and Second Kings. Right? When you do evil in the sight of the Lord, it is clearly an affront. Like this is this is over and over again. And Ur did so much, right, that the Lord put him to death. Verse eight. So then Judah said to Onan. Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, this seems odd, doesn't it? Right. But this is a cultural practice that happened in the day. Think of it from this way. They don't have any uh, any kind of welfare system. They don't have any way to take care of widows. They don't have any way to take care of these women who do not have any kind of means to take care of themselves. And so one of the protections within the Israelite society was actually that if the older brother died, right, and he had a wife, 
and as part of that, he did not have an heir, then the next youngest, uh, next youngest, uh, next oldest brother, I guess, would then take her as his wife so that he would perform the marital duty and then continue on the family line. Now, this does a couple different things. Number one, it does continue on the family line. Again, cultural practice. The second thing that it does is it provides a, a massive amount of protection for Tamar because now she has a place to live. Now she's got a way to be cared for. This is a good thing. It may seem culturally odd. You can see, you can jot this down for later. In Deuteronomy 25, the, the Leverite sort of vow or the, that, that, that whole understanding, the Leverite marriage, that's explained in Deuteronomy 25, beginning in about verse 5 or 6. And so you can read that and see how it's even instituted in the law for Israel later on. So I say all that because Ur died. Now Onan, it's his responsibility to take care of Tamar. But what happens? Okay, so uh, verse 9. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So now all of a sudden what happens to Onan? He, he becomes sort of self-conscious in this, right? He's like, no, no, no. If I all of a sudden have a kid with her, then that kid is technically my brother's by, by nature of how the Jewish, uh, the, the whole Hebrew system worked. And so I don't want that because then he won't be my own. And so selfishly, what does he do? So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. Clearly deceptive. Clearly trying to avoid the way that God had instituted to take care of Tamar, the way that God had instituted to take care of this entire family. And now we see this, this scene where Onan is just deceiving and he is sinful. So what happens? Uh, verse uh, 10. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. Now you keep reading. So then Judah said to Tamar and his, uh, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. That's his third son. So you're seeing the progression. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So now Tamar's a widow waiting for Shelah. But then what actually takes place? Verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. There that guy is again, co-conspirator in some ways. Verse 13, and when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance of Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw, and this is key, she, uh, she saw that Sheila was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. So what happened? Judah made a promise. Judah didn't fulfill the promise. So now all of a sudden Tamar is going to take this sort of matter into her own hands. She's still not being protected the way that the family is supposed to be, be protected. And so she all of a sudden goes up to uh, meet Judah. Verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute. And she, he didn't flee, though. He didn't run away. He didn't say, no, 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 you're a prostitute. I, I've devoted myself to the Lord. What happened? For she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know what, uh, that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, well, what will you give me that you may come into me? Again, I hope you're getting what all that's happening here. Is Judah acting righteously? Absolutely not. He's grieving, and as part of this grieving process, now he's going to see a cult prostitute, at least so he thinks he's going to see this cult prostitute. Like, this is a terrible kind of scene that's right in the middle of it. We're about to see Joseph sort of against that. Think of Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, right? Potiphar's wife is the one that tries to seduce Joseph, and what does he do? 
he stands back. He says, I'm a righteous man. I'm not going to do this. And he eventually gets thrown in prison for it. Now we have Judah sort of in the exact mirror kind of way doing the very opposite. He's going to seek it out. Tamar, if anything, is the opposite of Potiphar's wife. She's trying to act righteously to fulfill this duty so that she might be cared for. Again, it stands in contrast in this whole thing. But she asked, well, what, 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 what could you give me? So then verse 17, he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, I give, uh, if you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, um, uh, verse 18, he said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. Now think of these three, three items, right, as these are unique to Judah. No one else has these three items, right? It'd be like giving somebody your driver's license in many way. Hey, you know what? I'll give you my driver's license so that I can make good on my deal because I'm going to need that back, right? Like it is unique to Judah. That's these three items. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of widowhood. So she returns. Now, when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was in Nanai at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he, returned to, uh, so he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, there's no cult prostitute that's been here. And Judah replied, well, let her keep the things her own or we shall be laughed at. So Judah knows what? He knows what he just did was not good. Yet he still did it. He still offered that. And now he's afraid, not of retribution from the Lord, not of his wrongdoing and this sexual sin, not of anything like that. What is he afraid of? How everybody else is going to look at him. Oh, we're going to be laughed at if, if this gets out. So you see, I, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. So he just kind of gives up on the search. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said what? Bring her out and let her be burned. Now this is fascinating. Judah is so uh, like disconnected from God's righteousness and what he's done. He is now looking at Tamar saying, you've done wrong. Now you, as a result, you're the one who needs to be burned. As she was brought out, verse 25, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. What did she do? Then she uses the identity card. She says, I'm pregnant, but it's by the man who owns these three items. And she brings out these three items. And then what is Judah faced with? He goes from, I'm going to burn her because she has sinned to what? Verse 26. Then Judah, Judah identified him and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. We're going to come back to this idea in a second. But again, what kind of picture, right, in this second scene are we getting from Judah? We're getting a picture where he has not only been a co-conspirator in this whole profiteering off of, off of the selling of Joseph. Now he has done this abominable act with Tamar that he's so, he thinks he is so righteous and she is not. Yet at the very end, what happens? It's totally reversed. Like, this is Judah. At the very end, you read verse 27. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand. And the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread uh, on his hand, saying, This one came out first. 
But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. I love the Bible, right? It's just a funny, funny little anecdote, right? What he, look, it's like a breakaway. All right. Uh, therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread around his hand and his name was called Zerah. Now, this will become important in a second, but what happens? He has twins as a result of this. Yet this is sort of the last time we see Judah for the next several chapters. Now let me fill you in, okay? So here's what happens over the next couple of chapters. In verse 39 through 42, you get all of a sudden, now we enter back into the story of Joseph, the one that we're probably more familiar with. Joseph stands in contrast to his brothers. We have the scene with Potiphar's wife. He gets thrown in jail. This takes time. I mean, he's in jail for some two years. He eventually interprets dreams. He rises up to second in command, right, of all of Egypt. Basically, the only one higher than him is Pharaoh himself. And as a result, he said there are going to be seven years of prosperity and then there are going to be seven years of drought and famine. It's in those seven, that, that back end, the seven years of famine, that all of a sudden uh, the famine happens and the brothers, his brothers, come to Egypt to get food. And so now we're seeing how this begins to play out. Right? All of a sudden, his brothers are coming back. They, they need food. They don't know Joseph is there. They don't know anything like that. But his brothers come back, everyone except for Benjamin. And again, I'm summarizing kind of the events that happened in 39 through 42. Everyone come back except, except for Benjamin. And, and so Benjamin stays back. He's the youngest of all the 12, 12 sons. He stays back with his father, Jacob. All the other ones go forth. Now, what takes place, look at uh, chapter 42 real quick. And I don't know... Uh, uh, let's see, uh, verse 8. So they come back, they meet Joseph, they basically kind of give their family history and they're like, hey, we were 12 brothers, one of them has died, one of them is back home, and we are the rest, we just want food, we're good for our word, we're good for our money, can you give us food? Joseph, verse 8 of chapter 42, and Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them, and he said to them, you are spies, you have come to see the nakedness of the land. So now, we, in the midst of the scene, Joseph understands who they are, and then at the same time, he kind of responds in such a way to where he says, you guys are spies. Though he doesn't think they are spies, what is he doing? He's providing a series of tests. And over the next coming chapters, what happens is, is Joseph knows what his brothers have done in the past. He sees God's hand working all the way to rise him up to this point. He remembers the dream, and then he sort of begins to put his own brothers to the test in this way. And he says, look, and what happens at the very end of 42, he says, okay, here's how I'm going to test you. I don't trust you, right? Again, this is what he's saying to the brothers, though he knows who they are. I don't trust you. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go get Benjamin. All right, I want you to keep Simeon here, one of your brothers here, as kind of collateral, and I want you to go get Benjamin. And as you go get Benjamin, right, and I'm summarizing the rest of uh, 42 there, as you go get Benjamin, come back to me, and then you can have Simeon back, and then that way I know that you're telling the truth, that one of your brothers has died, and that you truly are who you say you are. That becomes kind of Joseph's uh, way to get Benjamin and the full family reunited back in Egypt. So they go back, and here's what happens, right? They go back, they report to Jacob, hey, uh, father, listen, here's what this guy, the second-in-command guy wants. He wants Benjamin to return. Jacob looks at him, he's like, what do you mean he wants Benjamin to return? He's the only one I have left from Rachel, or uh, yeah, from Rachel. And furthermore, 
he, he says what? He says, and you lost me, Simeon. Why would I give you Benjamin so that I can lose three sons? He's like, I'm not going to do that. This is where we're going to pick up in 43, because now we're going to see the third scene of Judah in the midst of this story. So the famine, so now they're back home. Simeon is still in Egypt. They're trying to figure out how to get Benjamin and the whole rest of the clan up to Egypt so that they can get food, so that they can be provided for. We'll pick up in verse 1 of 43. So now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had bought from, uh, brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. Now Judah comes up again. This is the third scene where we see Judah. Judah said to him, and again, think of the time difference, though, between chapter 38 and what's happened here. We know Joseph was at least in prison for two years. There's a, probably a significant amount of time that has passed between what happened in 38 and what's happening here. And you notice Judah's tone. He says, he, he kind of re reminds them, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother, Benjamin, with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. So again, Judah's reminding him of what Joseph, though he didn't know it was Joseph, what he had said. So Israel said, again, that's Jacob right there. Jacob says, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? Like Jacob's just mad. Why did you even say that you had another brother? Like, why, why are we even in this debacle? They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in, the, uh, was in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? Now Judah's up again, right here, verse 8. And Judah said to Israel, or Jacob, his father, send the boy, send Benjamin with me. Now think of this for a second. We go from Judah selling his brother to making a prophet of Joseph, right, this younger brother of his, to where now all of a sudden, what is Judah saying? He's saying, hey, send him with me. Send him with me and, and we will arise and, and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. And I, now verse nine is key because now we're starting to see something's happened in Judah's life because verse nine is different than the scene that we painted with Judah a, a moment ago. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. And so Judah, now in this third scene, seems different. We don't really have anything of what happened between 38 and what's happening now. But here's what we do know. Judah's sticking up for his brother. Furthermore, he says, if we don't come back or if I can't bring Benjamin back to us, I'll take the blame. I'll be the one to, to take the blame. And we're seeing a stark contrast between what he did to Joseph and what he's now doing with Benjamin. If you keep reading through uh, chapter 43, you see this play out, right? Verse 11, then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this, take some of the choice fruits. And he basically sends them off, makes them return all the way to Egypt. Verse Skip down to verse 16. So when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, so now they come back. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of this house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men, uh, for they are to dine with me at noon. So now Joseph, again, they don't know who Joseph is. All the brothers return. This is good. He sees Benjamin. They throw a big party. Everything is good. All is right. 
Verse 26. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them, and they bowed down to him on the ground, fulfilling the dream that he had all the way chapters earlier. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, uh, your, your, your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted his eyes and he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke of me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face, came out, controlling himself. He says, serve the food. Then they served the food himself. And so you see this whole piece taken through 34 that Benjamin is taking care of. But then you get into 44. All right. And this is what we're trying to build to. Because now all of a sudden we're going to see, uh, we're going to see Benjamin. Uh, we're going to see what happens to Benjamin and then what happens to Judah. Verse 1. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the sacks of these foods. So now they're going to go back. And, and uh, they're going to go back and they're going to gather, they're going to bring Jacob. He says, fill the sacks of, with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of the sack. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. So what they were supposed to do is give the grain money. They were supposed to return with, with grain, right? That's what they were supposed to do. What Joseph says is, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to fill all of their sacks with grain, but I want you to put my silver cup in Benjamin's bag. That's what he tells his own servants. Now, why would he do that? It's the final test for Joseph. And what's going to end up happening over the course of chapter 44 is Benjamin is going to get accused of stealing from Joseph. Now, I say all of this because when you follow this story, Joseph is providing these series of tests. Benjamin finally gets there. He sets Benjamin up for failure to see how the brothers are going to respond. Are they going to respond like they responded to me? Were they going to sell me into slavery again? Were they going to sell out their brother? Are they going to respond in such a way to where they're, they haven't changed at all? Time has done nothing. They're going to look exactly the same. They're going to preserve themselves and they're going to throw away Benjamin. Are they going to respond in the same way? And so what happens is you keep reading. So Benjamin Sackett's found out. But look at verse 14 of 44. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell down before him on the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done, stealing my stuff? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? Judah's third scene continued. Judah said, what shall we say, my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose cup, whose hand the cup has been found. But he said this, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. So Judah stands up. He's like, I get it. You found this silver in my brother's bag. We're all responsible for this. And Joseph said, no, no, no. It's just the one who has the silver. Then verse 18. Then Judah went up to him and said, oh, oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, 
saying, have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father and an old man and a young brother and this child of old age. His brother is dead and he alone is his mother's children and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down. So he's recounting all of these events. Verse 24, skip down there. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him these words. He said, go again, buy us a little food. Verse 27, skip down. Then your servant, my father said to us, you know that my wife bore two sons, one left me. So he's recounting all of this in verse 30. Now, therefore, in light of all of these things and in protection of Jacob, the father, in protection of the entire family, verse 30. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, Jacob will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame, my father, of all that life. There's, therefore, verse 33, Judah's speaking. He's speaking to Joseph. He's built this entire argument. Now, therefore, please let your servant, talking about himself, remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? What takes place? Judah, the first scene, he's the one that sells Joseph into slavery. Judah, the second scene, he's the one with Tamar that does all of that uh, sort of, he's the one that goes to seek out a prostitute. He's the one that, that puts that forth. He's the one that's acting unrighteously. In the third scene, though, what happens? Judah's the one that's all of a sudden saying, hey, father, I'm going to protect Benjamin. Then you get to the end of it, and what happens? Not only does he protect Benjamin, he says, look, guys, I know that uh, jo uh, Joseph, look, uh, you want to kill him? Let, let me take his place. Let me be the sacrifice for him. Judah steps in now all of a sudden, and he, he's offering something different. Rather than selling his brother like he did with Joseph, for Benjamin, now he's standing in his place. See, what is in interesting throughout this entire story is you see three different scenes where Judah's selling his brother, Judah and Tamar, and then you get this redemption story. At the very end, right, chapter 45, it says, Then Joseph could not control himself. He makes himself known. He says, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? And the rest of the book, you have this reunion that takes place because Judah's the one who stood up for Benjamin. Now, I say all that because we talk about madmen of the Old Testament. We talk about how does this all play? What does this actually mean for us? What can we begin to learn from this? Uh, we took a long time sort of working through the entire story because I think sometimes it's important to step back and then begin to read the story as it's presented in Scripture. Because there are different key words and key phrases that begin to happen that begin to tell us exactly what we need to know as far as how we should understand the narrative in the entire scope of Genesis or in the entire scope of Scripture. So what do we begin to learn from Judah's life? I just want to offer three quick things as we begin to close. First, we know this. From Judah's life, sin is natural to us and it is destructive always. If you look at Judah's life, no one taught him how to sin. No one taught him how to be deceptive. No one taught him how to sell his brothers into slavery. That was just a natural inclination of his heart. He was jealous. He wanted to profit from it. So he sold his brother into slavery. Furthermore, you see what happened with Tamar. You see Judah's sons even as part of this. What happens when Judah's sons begin to sin and they begin to do all of that? They get, there are consequences. Destruction begins to happen to them. What happens when Judah himself is in the process of grieving and yet goes up to find a cult prostitute? Sin is natural to us. Sin is naturally also destructive. 
There's never a point to where even as seductive as sin might be, there's never a point where you're going to come out on top when you sin. That's not at all what we get here. And so I think the first thing that we clearly see is that no one taught Judah how to behave like this. We see naturally that this is sort of Judah's inclination in his heart. Yet at the same time, here's the second point. Right? Not only is sin natural and destructive, here's the second, that the Lord tra- can transform the repentant. So you see Judah in the first two scenes and you get him as this, I mean, there's no reason he should be any kind of anything other than just a tr- troublemaker in many ways. Yet, we have all of a sudden that the Lord begins to do some kind of work in Judah's life. Now, what I find interesting is we're not privy to the, what happened between chapter 38 and what happened to him uh, in, in 43, right? We, we don't know exactly what happened, but what we know is we see the fruit of his life, right? And so in part, chapter 38, verse 25 says what? His response to Tamar. You see him taking ownership of his sin, Right? He says this, then Judah identified them and said, this is chapter, uh, verse 26 of 38, she is more righteous than I since I did not give her my son Shelah. Judah could have at that point shamed Tamar, could have said, where did you get those? You stole those from me. Could have said a variety of things, but he took ownership of his sin. And so part of the repentance process, even for us as guys, no matter how bad sin is natural, sin is destructive, and we are naturally prone to it. Yet what we can learn from Judah is first and foremost is that in the process of repentance, you have to own your sin. What does Judah do? We see at the very least he owns his sin. The second thing we kind of see in the midst of transform, uh, transformation is that transformation takes time. As you begin to own your sin, we see that there are years that pass for Judah's life until we see some kind of different fruit at the end of his life. That process takes time. I think sometimes we as guys just want, we're like, okay, you know what? I'm sorry, God. I'm sorry that that happened. And we immediately want to see the transformation take place in our lives to such an extent that we're a brand new person right then and right there. And the Lord can absolutely do that. However, most of the time what we see in Scripture is that the process of sanctification in our life takes a, it is a process. And it takes time. And it's a process of continual repentance, continually admitting where you fall short, continually taking ownership, like even we see glimpses of Judah. But I think even part of this transformation is that the fruit of repentance is seizing the next opportunity with faithfulness. And here's what I mean by that. We don't see the totality of Judah's repentance We don't see the totality of all that Judah prayed or the way he was transformed. What we do see, though, is the fruit of his repentance. We see that all of a sudden Judah and the way that he responds in the next opportunity that we see in Scripture, how does he respond? He responds with faithfulness to the Lord. He responds exactly like he should be. And I think this reminds us of transformation, that sin is naturally destructive. However, as sin is destructive, the Lord is in the process of transformation. And so as he transforms, we take ownership for our sin. We realize that transformation does take time. However, we also see that whatever the next opportunity is for your faithfulness, you can be faithful. The thing is, we have to submit to the Lord. The the last thing I'll, I'll say is this. Why highlight Judah? Why put chapter 38? Why don't we know anything else about the brothers? Because I think the third overarching thing we learn from Judah's life is that the Lord uses the repentant. Right? If sin is destructive, 
but he can transform the repentant. Well, know this also, that we as guys, that as we work through that process of sanctification, as the Lord begins to transform our life, make us more like him, he can use us despite our past. For Judah, we see that Judah ends up, if you go to chapter 49, where is Judah on this whole scope of things? Chapter 49, beginning in verse 8. You have Jacob, he's in the middle of blessing and cursing his sons, right? He's offering blessings and cursings for his sons. And you get to Judah, and you think of the character that we just built for Judah. And what does it say? Judah, verse 8, your brothers shall praise you, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, your father's son shall bow down before you. Now Judah almost has a Joseph-like kind of blessing here. But you keep reading, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Then verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. I find this fascinating. We just read all that Judah had done. Yet at the very end of his life, who is it that receives the blessing from Jacob? And ultimately, who is it that we know that it's the lion of Judah that we talk about? The, from the line of Judah, the one that is preserved as the southern kingdom later on in the Old Testament story. The one to whom uh, Christ comes from. It's Judah, the same Judah that we just read all that about. How is that possible? I think what we begin to see is we see that the Lord uses the repentant. It's interesting, too, when we read earlier, we read the brothers. Well, there were three older brothers to Judah, right? There was Reuben, there was Simeon, and there was Levi. Why didn't they get that kind of blessing? Why doesn't Jesus come from their line? Reuben, if you go back to chapter 35, he ends up sleeping with his father's concubine. Furthermore, Reuben, when the whole Benjamin situation where Judah offers himself up, you know what Reuben does? Reuben comes in and he says, hey, you know what? If Benjamin doesn't return, Father, I'll give you my two sons. He doesn't even step up for himself. He, he offers his two sons in that way. Simeon and Levi, if you go read Genesis 34, you know what they're doing? Deceptive. They're, they're, they're killing people because of the rape of their sister. And it is a terrible situation. But they murder a variety of people. They're deceptive and they, they paint this entire picture of what their family looks like and furthermore, what God did not tell them to do. And they go and do it anyway. Yet it's Judah who has basically a similar story to Reuben and Simeon and Levi. But at the end of his life, what is he? He seems to be transformed by the Lord, by the process of repentance. I think as we close this kind of teaching for us, what we are reminded of is that God uses us when we're repentant. And he can, because that's what the Lord wants to do. Sin is naturally destructive. Sin is naturally big. Sin will always be a bad thing. But through the process of repentance, here's what we know. We take ownership for our sin. We allow the Lord to transform us over and again. We begin in the next opportunity to be faithful. And then finally, we understand that we put ourselves in a position to be used yet again by God. As you read through the rest of Scripture, you'll notice in the Old Testament, it's the lion, it's the tribe of Judah that kind of stands out from everybody else. You go to Matthew chapter 1, 1 through 6. Who's in the lineage of Jesus? It's Judah and his two sons, Perez and Zerah from Tamar, are in Matthew 1, 1 through 6. 
How is that possible? We just read all of chapter 38, yet it is the redemption of the Lord who uses that terrible situation for his glory, for his purposes to send his son Jesus. Who is it in Revelation chapter 5, 2 through 5, that it's uh, the, the, who is worthy to open the scroll? Who can, who, who, who's the one who can bring about God's plan of redemption? It is the, the lion from the tribe of Judah who is worthy to answer. It's the only him. And yet we read Judah's story and we think, how can Jesus come from that? Yet we're reminded that we see the very end of Judah's life. There was a process of transformation that took place and God can use anybody. So our encouragement this morning, right? No matter where you find yourself and no matter what kind of sin or destructive patterns that you find yourself in, repentance is a process. But as you repent, own what you've done. Put it before the Lord. Allow him to transform you and know that you're never out of the game so long as you have life. So long as you are breathing, the Lord can still use a repentant soul. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this time this morning as we have unpacked a variety of verses and looking at one central figure of Judah. I thank you, God, that you use broken people. God, and that as we think of our own lives in the scope of your redemptive history, Lord, I pray that, that we own our sin. We own where we fall short. We repent. We understand that that takes time as you transform us. And through that process, God, I pray more than anything that we put ourselves back into a position of, 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 that you might use us in such a way to make an impact for your kingdom. We love you. It's in your son Jesus' name we do pray. Amen and amen. Thanks for listening to today's Bible study. For more information regarding Cottonwood Creek, go to cottonwoodcreek.org. And we hope you tune in next week for more episodes of Men's Bible Study.